As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three expert witnesses on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. As part of my work over the years, I've often traveled to countries that many would regard as dangerous or unstable. The thing is, though, that most of the time, most places are pretty fine, and I usually leave very happy to have visited the country. Because of this, a question always comes up in interviews to me. What nation would I draw the line at? Which country would I regard as simply too risky to enter or ever report from on the ground? And near the top of that list is this week's focus country, Somalia. A nation almost analogous with a failed state. A country that has fought on both sides of the Cold War. And a nation that is now being used as a dumping ground for everything from guns to nuclear waste. The country has been in turmoil for decades now, and it would be hard to think of another nation in worse shape than current-day Somalia, especially with the threat of Al-Shabaab at the very doorstep of Mogadishu. But how did we get here? How did Somalia, a once wealthy kingdom, fall into its current state? And what is being done to turn the country's fate around? And more importantly, why are its neighbors in Ethiopia and Kenya working so hard to make sure Somalia doesn't get back on its feet? Well, for that, we turn to our first guest. Part one, a failed state? I would say it's a, a very complicated situation where you're trying to resurrect central governments after a decade of collapse. Um, and on top of that, you have a security dynamic driven by uh, an al-Shabaab insurgency that is Islamist in nature. Omar Mahmoud is a senior analyst for the crisis group focusing on Somalia and Chad. He's also an ex-member of the Institute of Security Studies and an ex-member of the Peace Corps focusing on East Africa. He joins us today. Well, in Somalia, you're still trying to resurrect central governance. So basically in 1991, the state more or less collapsed. And so since then, efforts from the international community in particular have focused on resurrecting some sort of central authority. Now, that is kind of there now. It, well, it is there now, but it's still extending itself. So it hasn't really established itself. It doesn't have the same... Uh, credibility, legitimacy, or ability to project itself internally as governments do in, in Kenya or Ethiopia, for example. On top of that, you've had other sort of competing sources of, of power to that, which is either at, at a local level or groups that are outside the system, like Al-Shabaab, threatening the system as well. So, so I think it's really a long-term process of trying to get Somalia back on its feet. You know, it's basically been a generation without uh, a state or with a smaller 
uh, governance, uh, administrations and whatnot. And I think, honestly, it's going to take about a generation to, to continue forward. But we have seen progress over the past five, ten years. Um, and so you're seeing those signs develop, but it, it is very much a long-term game. It's not always linear. It's sometimes two steps forward, one, one step back. So what we think of today as the Republic of Somalia is actually very different to what a lot of Somalis would regard as Somalia. Uh, to start with, can you explain what the concept of Greater Somalia is? Sure. Well, Greater Somalia refers to this idea that all areas territorially that are inhabited by ethnic Somalis should be united into one sort of nation state or, or one sort of entity. Um, and this is basically a legacy of, of colonialism. So you have more or less five areas where Somalis inhabit, but when we talk about Somalia, that's just one of them. So on top of that, you have uh, the Northeast province in Kenya, you have the Ogaden region of Ethiopia, you have Djibouti, and then you have Somaliland, which was in a union with Somalia as well for about 30 years, but has since uh, dissolved that and proclaims its independence. So, so Greater Somalia really refers to all five of those areas. And, you know, it, it's no coincidence that the Somali, the star on the Somali flag actually has five points, one for each of these areas. Um, so, so that's kind of the difference. Areas where ethnic Somalis inhabit versus Somalia is what we think of as, as the uh, modern nation state of Somalia. Greater Somalia once held quite good influence over the East African region. But in the 1880s, Somalia was colonized by the French, British, and Italians for the proximity to the Bubble Mundub Strait, or the entrance to the Red Sea. So Somalia was broken into five parts, the divisions of which are still present to this day. The French colonized the northern tip of Somalia around the Bubble Mundub Strait, which today is the nation of Djibouti. The Ogadan Desert region of Somalia, or the far west of it, became part of what is today eastern Ethiopia. And the southern tip of Somalia was given to the British colony of Kenya, making up about a third of their territory. What remained is the current borders of Somalia, a nation kind of shaped like a number seven. So if you imagine that top part of the seven, that became the British colony of Somaliland. And to this day, they are vying for independence from the rest of Somalia. And we'll get to that later. The remaining slanted bit of that seven shape was colonized by the Italians, known as Italian Somaliland, and this contains the current day capital, Mogadishu. So one of the overarching goals of Somalia has always been to reunite all of the Somali territory under a Somalian flag again. But this has led to them going to war with both Kenya and Ethiopia over the years, particularly under the umbrella of the Cold War. So can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. No, I mean, the Cold War is, is a very interesting story for Somalia in particular, or for the Horn, I guess I should say, because basically you have this rivalry between Ethiopia and Somalia, and a lot of that has to do with this idea of greater Somalia, and um, at the time, uh, Somalia still saw or, or had opportunities to try to bring the Ogaden region of Ethiopia under, under Somalia. So it's still tied in with this objective of, of uniting all of these Somali parts. Um, but then you, you throw this layer on top of that of, of the Cold War. And so the superpowers supporting different sides. And so initially, you did have um, uh, you know, the USSR support 
to uh, Somalia, but through the process of the Ogaden War, when Siad Barre basically uh, was, was previously supporting insurgent groups in Ogaden, uh, but basically took that to a whole new level and actually invaded the Ogaden, you know, the, the, the superpower dynamics switched sides completely. And so the USSR started supporting this new Derg regime in, in Ethiopia. And so that inevitably meant that they pulled their support from Somalia, given the interconnectedness of these two layers and the dis dis disputes. Um, and, and so that led to, obviously, USSR support, but also Cuban troops, which really turned the tide of that war and, and um, you know, was, was a huge turning point in, in Somalia, which had made major gains in the Ogaden, but ultimately those gains were reversed. And uh, Somalia suffered defeat in that war and, and brought a lot of the tensions around the Siad Bari regime to the surface. And then you saw how their their um, how how they reacted domestically changed after that as well and became a bit more repressive and, and whatnot. So this is a huge turning point in in um, uh, Ethiopian Somalia Horn relations, but also internally in Somalia itself. And and so it's not divorced from external rivalries that we saw during during the Cold War, but really they actively played a role within that. And they actually went to war with Kenya as well, didn't they? Yeah, so that was at the time, uh, again, it ties into this greater Somali idea where in, in the you know northern parts of Kenya, which are ethnically, a lot of them ethnically Somali inhabited as well, this idea that they were given a referendum to vote at the time of uh, decolonization, which side they wanted to join. And then that referendum pointed towards joining Somalia's side, but that wasn't really respected by uh, the new Kenyan authorities in, in Nairobi. And so there was basically this um, kind of reaction to that in, in the shift of war. And, and so Somalia at the time you know, of, of decolonization, they were the one country in Africa that, that um, did not accept the, the colonial boundaries. There was this uh, Cairo Declaration, which a lot of other countries signed up to, but Somalia conspicuously did not. And so it ties into this idea of trying to reunite all of the Somali inhabited areas. And so, you know, one means of doing that was supporting insurgencies and, and, and sort of proxy actors that were challenging uh, states at that time. And so supporting some of the insurgent actors in North, Northeast Kenya who were fighting basically the Nairobi government to reunite with, with Somalia. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And the foreign intervention really didn't stop there either. In 1991, President Clinton of the U.S. sent in American soldiers to Somalia. So why did American soldiers go into Somalia in the 90s? And what was Clinton hoping to achieve with this intervention? 
Well, so basically, 1991 was the culmination of state collapse in Somalia. So this has been bubbling for a while. You know, I think the the loss of the Ogaden War was a turning point, and and dictator Siad Barre at the time became increasingly a bit more repressive, and you started to see challenges to his rule pop up in in Somalia as well. And of course, you know, some actors like uh, Ethiopia, which had been basically at the brunt of of Somali proxy support for rebels in in their country, also in turn supported some of these uh, rebels against Bari as well. So you see this competing proxy war dynamic. Uh, but basically, a number of these had had mushroomed, and by the late '80s, Bari's um, tenure was becoming increasingly increasingly uh, untenable. And so that mushroomed in, in in 1991, where he fled the capital Mogadishu. And uh, so unfortunately here you see very different stories popping up in different parts of, of Somalia. And, and Mogadishu itself became the battleground between two more or less clan militias. And uh, it very much divided uh, uh, the city, but also the fighting actually led to, to its destruction in, in a lot of ways. And so I think the U.S. and also the U.N.'s intervention at this time was to basically put put a pause on some of these dynamics. There was also a massive uh, humanitarian crisis going on, a food security crisis. Um, so also, you know, responding to um, the very specific humanitarian needs. Uh, but it also tied into this idea of this post Cold War order, where where the U.S. is is you know leading its uh, military advantage for you know the the sort of betterment of of i guess uh, a new world order and kind of resolving some some active conflicts and and uh putting its its power to use in that way um i think there was this idea also that you know the collapse of somalia could very much threaten the region above the horn of africa and then i think we've seen that uh hold true and in, in a number of ways since then um and, and so for a lot of reasons you know somalia was was at a very pivotal juncture and uh, the U.S. and others in the international community thought uh, some sort of intervention could kind of reverse that tide. And how successful was that intervention? Uh, I'd say it was not successful at all. Um, basically, uh, these international actors got involved in a very complex situation um, and, you know, at times inadvertently wound up uh, supporting certain actors or, or their relations became adversarial with certain actors turning them into a party to the conflict. Um, the so, sort of international assistance and aid became also something that was fought over. So, so again, also became a, a resource uh, within the competition and, and the conflicting uh, powers as well within Somalia. And so I think you had, you know, a series of, of very tough engagements. And then eventually, you know, this is highlighted particularly by the Black Top, infamous Black Off Down incident and whatnot. But basically you had the international community pull out and, and decide, you know, they weren't making progress there. It's, it's too complicated of a situation, too much of a mess and, and just kind of left. And so all those ideals and objectives they were trying to achieve never really got achieved. So after all these interventions, Somalia is very fractured. In fact, it's more like four nations living under one boundary these days. Sticking to our description of the shape of the number seven, the bottom third of the seven slant is Jubaland, home to Mogadishu. Around 40% of Jubaland is currently under the control of Al-Shabaab, who do not answer to the Somalian government. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. The top half of this seven slant is known as Puntland, who are semi-detached from the central government in Mogadishu, in the base from where a lot of international piracy originated. 
the last in the former British territory, is the flat bit on top of the seven, who are seemingly a lot more stable than the rest of the country, and have been pushing for their own independence as Somaliland for years now. So can you take us through how we got to this point, a nation that's almost broken into four pieces? So I would, I would describe it uh, probably on, on a three-tiered level, um, basically. And so you have this idea of federalism in Somalia. And, and so by that, I mean that there's a central authority based in Mogadishu, but outside of that, you have other entities that have sprung up through, through various ways, some independently on their own, some through bottom-up processes, some through you know, federal government intervention as well. But you have various federal member states that operate at a level below Mogadishu and work in concert, in theory, with, with Mogadishu. Uh, and so that's where you find Jubaland, Puntland, but there's a few others, Southwest and Hirshabele as well. And, and so these don't claim to be independent. They claim to have a degree of autonomy. Now, that degree of autonomy is still very much contested vis-a-vis -vis Mogadishu. Uh, there's never really been a good comprehensive settlement in terms of how the, the power sharing arrangements are going to work, the resource sharing arrangements. Um, you know, the, the institutions that would govern this, such as the Constitution, remain provisional and honestly unclear on a lot of this and even contradictory at times. And, and so you see that constant tension in that dynamic where Mogadishu is trying to assert itself, uh, but that comes at the expense of some of the federal member states, particularly Puntland and Jubaland lead the charge here. Now, Puntland is also in a very interesting case study because it emerged prior to the current central government. And in 1998, uh, some of the clans there kind of got together and, and started creating this own administration. So it really predates the federal government, but it's never sought independence, just, just a high degree of autonomy. Uh, but its relations with Mogadishu kind of ebb and flow, basically depending on whether Puntland feels this autonomy is being threatened or not. Now, now Somaliland's a different case because it has overtly declared independence. It says it's not part of this federalism system in, in Mogadishu, even though Mogadishu carves out a role for it. It says it doesn't participate. Basically, since 1991, it said its act of union with Somalia is, is, has been dissolved. And so Somaliland also has, you know, they, they back this up through the, a distinct colonial history as they were colonized by the British while the rest of Somalia was colonized by the Italians and that they had uh, basically achieved independence a few days earlier than, than Somalia and actively, you know, voted to, in, uh, to, to engage in a union. And then so they view it as kind of a choice and now their choice is, is dissolve that. So Somaliland's completely um, declared its independence and doesn't really engage with Mogadishu. You know, for its part, uh, it treats itself as a sovereign nation, has, has relations with external countries and, and takes on a lot of the tasks you would expect a sovereign nation to do Mogadishu doesn't really have much much influence in there. So, so it does act basically independently. And that's a crucial difference between Puntland and Jubaland, which, which might sometimes take on some of those efforts, but not to the full extent Somaliland does. Now, on top of that, you, as you mentioned, you have the Al-Shabaab insurgency. And, and so Al-Shabaab is obviously not part of this federal system, but is an actor outside of it. They do control large amounts of territory, especially in, in, in southern Somalia. Uh, and, and, you know, they've been basically the actor outside the system challenging the, the federal government and the implement, implementation of this federal system at all 
sort of corners. And, and basically what you have is you're actually trying to build up the federal government uh, in opposition to al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab at the time was, was, was controlling more territory and ruling a lot of a lot of South Central Somalia. So the federal government's rise in power is coming um, at, at the expense of al-Shabaab. You know, that's kind of a, a reverse situation that we see from other Islamist insurgent movements um, on, on the continent where, where they're kind of uh, kind of taking over areas where the federal government either, you know, has kind of retrenched or they're taking power from the federal government. This is really the opposite situation. Um, and, and so al-Shabaab's basically the latest you know, line and a long line of, of very conservative Islamist uh, movements in, in Somalia, but been the most successful, uh, particularly in terms of it, its military force. And so they've been able to hold territory, even though they've lost some of it over the past few years, but still hold a substantial amount of, of territory in the country. So from speaking with people who work in the area, Somaliland seems to be a lot more stable than Puntland or Jubaland. Less car bombings, more authority, and even a quick Google map search and a look around shows a stark contrast in living standards. Why is Somaliland so much more stable than the rest of Somalia? No, it's definitely a correct assumption. You know, Somaliland uh, basically internally was able to consolidate itself. Um, you know, it, it still went through a series of uh, civil unrest after basically the territory was liberated from Siad Bari's control by uh, the SNM, the Somali National Movement. Um, but basically, it was able to consolidate it, its control. You know, one of the key dynamics is there that, that there's a main clan, the Isak clan, which has control of basically the central part. But, uh, but basically, yeah, Somaliland was able to, through a series of kind of bottom-up um, grassroots uh, conferences and interventions basically able to come to some sort of accommodation in a way that just didn't happen in, in southern Somalia. You know, rather, Mogadishu was actively fought over while Hargeisa, you know, and part of this was because, uh, you know, Hargeisa had been leveled, Somaliland had been destroyed in this fight against the, the Bari dictatorship, that they were able to come together after that um, in, in, in a manner that um, um, southern Somalia did not. So whilst the Somalian government tolerates Somaliland, it is actively fighting al-Shabaab. So who are al-Shabaab? So, so al-Shabaab is aligned to al-Qaeda. Um, they, they've uh, you know, formalized that alliance after bin Laden's death, but had a relationship before that. And they've remained steadfast uh, aligned to this and even really repressing internally some of their own members that sought to join the Islamic State when it burst onto the scene a few years ago. And, and um, you know, so, so very much remain within the Al-Qaeda wing and Al-Qaeda frame. You know, the way I usually describe Al-Shabaab is it's not just a terrorist actor, but it's a governing actor. It's a governing actor that engages in terrorism, more or less. Um, and, and so in that s sense, it's really very much a competitor to the federal government. Um, Al-Shabaab controls large portions of, of South and Central Somalia. So some of these have been taken back through advances by the African Union peacekeeping mission, by the Amazon mission over the past few years. But this is kind of stalled. And so you have this status quo set in where Al-Shabaab has some strongholds in South Central Somalia, particularly Middle Juba, and in some other areas of the country. And there hasn't been much movement to take back those over the, over the past few years. And, and so Al-Shabaab, you know, it, it's a number of things at once. It's a governing institution. 
It's uh, one guided by very conservative Islamist ideology, very much similar in, in the wing of, of Al-Qaeda. Um, and, and this is more or less a continuation of a number of movements that have been present in, in Somalia, particularly since state collapse, but even before that. And so Al-Shabaab is really just the latest iteration of this very conservative ideology, which aligns very closely with, with you know, some imports from, from Gulf ideologies around Wahhabism and, and Salafism. And, and so they, they fall within that wing. Um, in, in that sense, you know, they, they are also an Islamist actor. They're a, they're a governing actor, but there's also a, a terrorist element to it. And so they actively engage in acts of terrorism and in Mogadishu and other parts of the country. And they're also, you know, in a lot of ways, a criminal actor as well. They've been quite good about generating sources of finance internally within the country. You know, I wouldn't say that this question comes up all the time. Is, is al-Shabaab a locally generated entity or is it really very much uh, supported externally? You know, al-Shabaab has that external relationship with al-Qaeda, but they very much stand on their own. And, and so they've been able to generate uh, financing through, through, you know, illegal uh, smuggling of, of charcoal and sugar and then these sort of commodities uh, through through checkpoints within the region and then raise you know enough money and, and perhaps even more money than the federal government itself raises and then so that puts them also in, in a very strong position uh, but also one where they can be seen as, as a criminal actor so there are a lot of things at once and you know it kind of depends on who you talk to and what frame they're, they're taking um, in terms of how they see the group I'd say you know it really got its start in the in, in around 2007. Ethiopia had invaded Somalia to kind of dislodge the Islamic Courts Union, which was this group of of, of uh, you know, conservative leaning um, you know um, actors, which had solidified control over Mogadishu, but it represented a threat to Ethiopia, who was also always thinking about this greater Somalia idea and, and you know, the presence of, of some of these actors um, intertwined with the global war on terror, with U.S. concerns about some al-Qaeda operatives in East Africa getting, getting sanctuary there. Um, and so after that invasion, you know, al-Shabaab kind of emerged as the youth wing of that movement and, and the forefront of resistance to Ethiopia. And so at that time, they were also very much viewed as kind of freedom fighters. There's that historic animosity we, we've talked about between Ethiopia and Somalia. And so this was seen as, for, for a lot of Somalis as the latest iteration of that. You know, Ethiopia, even though it's an incredibly diverse country as well, is often portrayed in Somalia as sort of a Christian highland empire. Um, and, and so, you know, al-Shabaab as, as the representative of Somalia's uh, Muslim population was fighting a war and, and very much popular in that sense, given the stance that they were taking. Um, but over time, you know, I think al-Shabaab's uh, popularity has probably waned a bit. They've, they've resorted to a bit more repressive tactics, um, including those um, against their own civilian population. Um, but, you know, at the same time, they do offer some, some key services, and that's where I talk about this competition with the federal government. There's some things service-wise that they just do better than the federal government, and, and part of that relates to corruption in the federal government. Part of that relates to how al-Shabaab's able to, I wouldn't say resolve clan tensions, but sometimes clamp down on clan tensions, so, so there's a security benefit there. Part of it re revolves around al-Shabaab's justice system which um, you always hear kind of stories and reports about people even living in government-owned territories that travel out to al-Shabaab territories to have a dispute resolved because they have such low levels of trust in, in the government system. 
and and so you know that that's another facet of what what Al Shabaab is as as you know uh, it's it's competition with with the federal government. So I think it's a lot of things to to, to a lot of people, uh, but the key aspect I, I point to is really. Um, rather than just looking at al-Shabaab purely as a terrorist actor, we have to look at them as, as a governing actor and really a competitor to the federal government itself. Theoretically, though, if al-Shabaab was to win their fight and capture the rest of Jubaland and form some sort of government, would Puntland or Somaliland accept this result? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think you know you'd have uh, Puntland or Somaliland in particular, you know, welcoming that or, or happy to work with them. You know, Al Shabaab still is a dangerous actor. It still threatens both of those entities. It's it's done attacks in, in both of them as well. Um, so so I don't think you'd have any sort of accommodation there. Um, it would it still represent quite a challenge. You know, some of the precursors to Al Shabaab, um, this movement in particular, AIAI Al Ittihad Al Islamiyah had a presence in Puntland and, and was chased out more or less in, in the 90s. Um, so Puntland's dealt with this before. They, they uh, particularly one of their former leaders, was very against this idea of, of uh, you know, Islamist actors like al-Shabaab operating in that area. So, so I don't think you'd see an accommodation in, in that area. Uh, what you would see, though, is more and more so these days, uh, people are questioning how the war against al-Shabaab is going to end, basically. Um, are we involved in just kind of this endless struggle? Has the military side shown, you know, uh, the extent to which it can accomplish gains? And that's why we've been in a bit of a status quo the past few years. And so more, more this question of how you can um, either engage al-Shabaab or accommodate them in some sort of way so they give up their, their violence is coming to the fore. And, and I think the experience of, of U.S. talking to the Taliban in Afghanistan is, is part of that. So right now, peacekeepers from Amazon and the African Union are inside Somalia to help the fight against al-Shabaab. But do you think they have the capacity to win this fight? And do you think they actually want to win this fight? Because to complicate things, the African Union is based in Ethiopia. And historically, a stronger, stabler Somalia is a threat to eastern Ethiopia. So with Somalia fighting itself, it's not as much of a threat to Ethiopia. So do you think they even want to win this fight? Yeah, so that's always kind of the, the competing dynamic, especially when you look at Somalia's neighbors, Kenya and Ethiopia, this idea that they wanted a weakened Somalia, so this whole idea of greater Somalia and therefore, you know, the, the um, threats that is implicit to their territories, uh, that idea kind of dies out. Uh, but I do think the calculus of al-Shabaab changes that a little bit, because now you do want a coherent governing structure in, in Somalia. So one, it can take on al-Shabaab itself, and two, it can ensure such threats like that don't emerge again in the region. So I think that changes the calculus a little bit. You know, the African Union mission in Somalia has been present there since 2007 and has made incredible progress and in a very difficult situation, especially early on in the mission's um, in the mission's tenure when, you know, basically it was viewed as more or less dead on arrival. You know, Al-Shabaab controlled Mogadishu already at that point. So they've been able to fight back and gain quite a bit of territory with this idea that uh, they can then open up a space for Somali political processes to take, take root and take hold. And, you know, that has happened, certainly, to some degree. Now, has it happened 
to the degree everyone wants or expects and, and has there been a slowdown over the past few years as a status quo sort of has set in? I, I think absolutely. And, and that, I think that's why some are kind of questioning whether we've hit the high watermark there or whether some sort of um, you know, greater impetus or revitalization of, of the mission can, can lead to uh, more, more gains. Um, but that, no one wants to reverse these gains, but we just haven't really figured out how to do that in a way that, that coincides with the realities of, of regional interests, that coincides with the realities of funding constraints and, and whatnot. So right now, the mission is scheduled to hand over primary security responsibility to Somali security forces by the end of next year. But I think you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find an actor that would really say um, that, that, that um, you know, Somalia is ready for that. What we have now is an already fractured nation dealing with yet another external problem. With the authority of the government barely holds firm 100 kilometers outside of Mogadishu. And with this lack of regulation, other actors will step in. And to talk more about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. There's something in the water. Yeah, I would I would describe it young, vibrant, growing um, city. That's how I would describe it. A recovering, of course, from the effects of the war, but also I would use the word huge potential to describe it. Degan Ali is the executive director of the African Humanitarian and Development Organization ADISO. She also has over twenty years of experience in humanitarian work in the region and grew up in the Somali capital of Mogadishu. She joins us today. I think Mogadishu um, obviously is still reeling um, from insecurity and still has issues with uh, explosions and assassinations and all of those things. It's far, far much better than it used to be historically. I've been in, around working in and out of Somalia and living in the region for almost 20 years now. So I've seen much, much worse situations. I remember a time when we couldn't even go into Mogadishu. So what does the majority do for work? What does the average person do to make money in a country that doesn't have a huge amount of natural resources? So the majority of the people are still involved in agriculture, whether it's nomadic pastoralism or they're, um, they, ha they are rearing livestock. Um, in very rural and really kind of harsh conditions for the average uh, American citizen or Australian citizen. Um, and uh, those in uh, South and Central Somalia are still heavily engaged in uh, farming. Um, but yeah, majority are trying to survive through agricultural production. Somalia was in the headlines a few years ago as a hotspot for international piracy. So can you explain a bit about how and why piracy was so rampant a few years ago in the north of Somalia? Well, the Somali pirates, uh, as, um, as they have been, you know, uh, put on the big screen uh, by Hollywood, um, uh, it's not really, that's not how they started off. Uh, what Hollywood has portrayed as pirates is not the reality. Majority, uh, or piracy, the beginning of piracy was actually local fishermen trying to survive and eke out a living from fishery production. And most of it was selling into the local markets. This is not a large scale fishing uh, industry that is exported. This is all local production. 
So the local fishermen were being terrorized by international illegal trawling uh, ships that were coming illegally into the Somali fishing waters. And so when the local fishermen tried to go deeper into the ocean, and this is still Somali territorial area, but because there's no Coast Guard and there's no strong government mechanisms, we're not able to protect our coastline. Um, and so these uh, these trawlers would basically terrorize the Somali fishermen. And in the beginning, they would cut their nets um, so that they would not be competing with them. Um, and then it became more and more insidious. They would be burning a boiling water and dropping the water onto the fishermen. Um, eventually, they started getting guns and started shooting at the fishermen. Um, all of that led the local fishermen to start taking arms. They said, we have to protect ourselves. We can't go out to sea without guns. And that resulted in um, eventually um, seizing the first uh, illegal fishing boat. And that boat, um, to, to then they held the people for ransom. They, and I don't think they really expected that anybody would pay money, to be honest with you. I think it was just a fluke. Um, and that ransom pay, that was paid eventually led into what we know to be known now as piracy. And uh, young people realized very quickly this was a very quick and easy cash. You know, you just capture a ship and uh, hold the people ransom and get paid. And more and more young people um, started getting involved in it as a, as a way to earn money. So in a usual piracy case, would the fishermen kill the people on board or was it just a case of they'd occupy and then demand a ransom and then leave as quick as possible? No, I don't know of any incidences of people being killed on purpose. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, these ransom incidences across the country that people have died, maybe in more um, with people being kidnapped, like from NGOs and stuff. But yeah, no, norm, because they were more valuable alive for, for the money. And their intention was not to kill these trawlers. Their intention was to earn money from them. And how did the international community respond to these piracy attacks? They took a very strong, harsh security measure. And they basically, you know, with NATO getting involved and all of that, um, and uh, uh, and patrolling the Somali waters. Um, I, I'm not sure if, according to international standards, if that was it was that was really legal. What that how that happened, but um, they they wanted to protect their interests, and of course, you know, so they started uh, patrolling the Somali waters. And um, when the pirates started getting captured and being tried in international courts. Uh, and going to jail, um, that was a massive deterrent. Um, so I think uh, the local community, of course, also put a lot of pressure uh, on these pirates and to try to stop it. This is not something that the community wanted. Um, there was a lot of antisocial behavior that the pirates were bringing into the communities because they were flush with these young, uneducated um you know, young men were being flushed with so much money and uh, and they would uh, basically, you know, the social structure, the, the respect of the elders, the control that the elders had was uh, eroding. Um, and so there was a lot of antisocial behavior that was coming up where there was uh, um, drug abuse on the part of these young people or other things that was taking place. Um, so the community actually was not happy, the majority of the community was not happy about the piracy and didn't want it to continue. And I think that also put some 
uh, social pressure on these young men. So what kind of money are we talking about here? You know, what would a fisherman earn compared to someone who was, let's say, engaging in piracy? A fisherman could earn maybe one, two, three thousand a year, uh, a couple hundred dollars every month, uh, depending on the day. Um, and then you maybe your take uh, in a ransom case could lead to you getting twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Actually, this is the interesting part: is that during the time of piracy, the height of the piracy, because the international trawlers were scared to come into Somali waters, we were actually seeing, up until Mombasa, we were seeing extremely high fish catch that hadn't been seen in years, you see. So, um, so there is a definite direct correlation between overfishing and illegal fishing, and, and actually piracy was actually having a positive consequence on fishery communities and their production and and keeping the the ecosystem the marine ecosystem healthy so the other huge problem somali fishermen are facing is illegal dumping by western nations particularly italian companies the reports are suggesting that italian firms were taking money for waste disposal and then dumping the garbage off the coast of somalia the most shocking part of this report also suggests that nuclear waste is being dumped into somali territorial waters to save money on the expensive procedure of storing nuclear waste. This is now wreaking havoc on the local wildlife, directly affecting the fishermen. How do people get away with such a blatantly awful thing in Somali waters? The communities have been saying this from the day I arrived in the country. Um, in 1999, I've been hearing this. Um, I believe it's probably true because it's not something that could be made up from the north to the south, because I've heard it all over. Um, I work all over the country. I've heard it everywhere. So um, uh, there were cases where warlords were, uh, the rumors were that certain warlords had accepted uh, to uh, to use Somali waters as a place to dump, and they had uh, received uh, compensation, or what I would call bribes, from governments like Italy. Um, I, I, I mean, nothing surprises me. This wouldn't surprise me in the sense that, you know, uh, there's no altruism on behind of multi-billion dollar corporations or from former colonies who are have no vested interest in the development of, uh, or actually have a vested interest in the underdevelopment of many countries in Africa. So I would, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. There are more horrific things that have been done by, uh, the, by European countries uh, to Africa. The other big thorn in the side of Mogadishu is Al-Shabaab. And being there on the ground working with locals, how do you think Al-Shabaab is viewed in Somalia? Well, Al-Shabaab are just uh, people who are from the Somali community. They're just, they could be, um, they're, they're normal people. They're not boogeymen sitting somewhere. Um, uh, they're not, uh, they're basically, they have serious ideological differences with the government. They have serious ideological differences, I, I would probably say, with um with, with some of the religious leaders, um, mainstream religious leaders. Um, and they believe that um, they need to impose those, uh, that ideolo ideology by force. The history of Al-Shabaab and how it, how it started is actually quite 
interesting because I was in Somalia in 2006 when the Islamic Courts Union, then called the ICU, was took charge and took control of the capital. And the capital was really no man's land before that. Um, there was it was just massive amounts of insecurity and so much injustice happening. And the ICU, the time that they had control over about a period of six months, they turned Mukdisho into the most peaceful uh, functioning, the courts were functioning, people were able to get justice before you could have your property taken from you, you could have someone beat you or uh, steal money from you or rape you if you were a woman. All types of things were happening with pure impunity. There was no legal system in place. And when I say legal, I mean even Islamic legal system in place or even secular. And uh, and so they were bringing peace, but they also brought justice with them and uh, things were functioning. I actually remember a white woman, I think she was an American, who was with um, WFP saying to me in a meeting, uh, at one of these coordination meetings with the UNR and the INGOs, she said for the first time in, I don't know, forever since before the Civil War, we as WFP are able to actually target the minority populations, the Bantu populations around the Shabele and the Juba rivers. I said, really? She said, yeah. And I said, why? She said, because the ICU, they're actually giving the food to the people who need it most, irrespective of whether they're minorities or whether they're the majority clan. And historically, what would happen is the majority clans would be gatekeepers and they would ensure that they would take the lion's share or maybe everything of all the food aid. And here, for the first time, there was actually a system of governance that was trying to be fair and ensure. And this would all happen under the, the, the quote unquote uh, leadership of the warlords and different groups controlling the country. I also think that their ideology might be, you know, they wouldn't be open to things around, um, I don't know, did things around, you know, just, uh, they're not, they're obviously not open to liberal democratic quote unquote principles and things around, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of this and freedom of that, you know, um, they want the country to be governed according to Sharia law. I would say the majority of the past 10, 15 years um, in the height of the Al-Shabaab times where they had more control of the country, the, the people felt generally supportive. The poor, the ones under their rule felt more supportive of Al-Shabaab because again, they were getting, um, they were getting justice. Um, uh, they were get, able to get immediate uh, addressing of their issues. They were able to um, get services that weren't previously there. And in some ways, many people will say that we would prefer Shabab over the warlords or over the corruption of these governments. Um, but at the same time, of course, you know, some people might say that their tactics have become um, extremely brutal. And um, I think uh, the, the bombings of uh, universities and university students. I think in Mogadishu, that was a turning point in terms of public support of Al-Shabaab. And Al-Shabaab's not just in Somalia, it also spills over into Uganda, Kenya, and a few other nations, is that correct? 
I mean, they have made, they have done interventions in Uganda. Um, they have obviously done several, I mean, yeah, just, yeah, horrific attacks in Kenya. Yeah, they have come, they are, I would see them as being very much regionally engaged because they see the Kenyan government and the Ugandan government as being allies to the Somali government and being part of the troops that are Amazon troops um, that are trying to remove Al-Shabaab from many parts of South Central. So they see them as part of their enemy. They don't see only the government as their enemy, but any allies of the government who are putting troops on the ground. These countries, especially the Kenyan uh, government, has troops on the ground inside Somalia. So, um, but yeah, of course, you know, the attacks that have happened in Kenya specifically have been quite um, grotesque and just horrific, yeah. I mean, as as I said, you know, there are people who claim that there was an external influence um, um, into the formation of these uh, this group, um, but the leadership, as far as I know, and uh, and I, especially when this was the Islamic Courts Union, um, were all purely Somali. Um, and uh, when it split off and uh, it, they became Al-Shabaab and different groups, then um, the, the leadership continued to be Somali, but there, there are, um, people do say there were external influences like Al-Qaeda, but the leadership, I think it's still purely Somali. The US particularly is opposed to Al-Shabaab, using a fairly extensive set of drone strikes against them in assistance of the Mogadishu government's fight. But how many drone strikes on average do you think the average Somali would be aware of? I think far more common than we probably know um, and probably reported by mainstream media. Um, but yeah, they do happen at least every year. There's at, we, at least every year we hear of a three, four, five strikes where people have died. So yeah, I think they're, uh, so if those are the ones that are making the press, you wonder how many others are happening that we don't hear about, maybe because one person dies or maybe because people don't die. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, they're heavily, heavily involved. It seems since the 1880s, Somalia has been at the mercy of external powers a peace to be moved around the board. They've taken orders from the British, the French, the Italians, the Americans, and even the Russians, as well as many other small powers over the years. But what about now? With the US starting to turn away from open fire of conflicts, what is the dynamic today? With the majority of foreign troops fighting in Somalia being from Amazon, the African Union's mission in Somalia, and not one of the usual great powers. How will this impact the region? And what will this mean for Somalia's relationship for the rest of East Africa? Well, to talk more about that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Brick by Brick The last couple of times I've flown into Mogadishu have, have been quite dramatically different. Um, I flew in, in the 1990s in, in the... Uh, height of the civil war and was not able to land at Mogadishu International Air Airport such as it was. I had to land on airstrips outside the city um, because of what were called sky checkpoints, which were the artillery barrages that were put up by various warlords to prohibit small planes from landing in parts of the city they didn't control. And so I, in the 90s, would land at these 
small places outside and and um, drive uh, across a very arid uh, landscape into the city, as it were, through the back door. The last time I was in Somalia a year ago, um, I had my passport stamped, which is the first time I'd had that happen since the 1980s. And it had the accoutrements of, of, of being a, um, a regular uh, international arrival. But that said, just around the airport, you have the, uh, the infrastructure of the United Nations, uh, which has a headquarters there, which is very heavily fortified and sandbagged against the attacks of the extremist group Al-Shabaab. And most of the visitors actually live in quite some seclusion, segregation from the uh, regular Somali life of the capital, which goes on. Alex Duval is the executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University and a research professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Alex is an award-winning author of books such as The Real Politics of the Horn of Africa, and is often regarded as the foremost expert when it comes to the region. He joins us today. Well, there's a concerted international effort to make Somalia look like a regular state. And uh, Somalis like that. Um, It is obviously extremely welcome that there are regular international flights, that there are uh, many of the institutions of uh, a standardized, institutionalized, bureaucratic government being set up. Somalis are extremely mobile, they travel a lot, so having passports, having international recognition, having embassies, having uh, the documentation necessary for being a citizen of the modern world is is desperately important. However, that um, facade doesn't go very far. The great majority of Somalia lives according to uh, a different set of rules. Um, And and these are rules that have been uh, rooted in in a Somali culture, which derives from a lineage system called, popularly called a clan system, whereby all Somalis know one another by their uh, ancestry on the male line, so everyone can immediately be by, be identified. Um, but it's also an extremely adaptable uh, modern uh, commercial system. Somalis, even in remote rural areas, are very well connected, very commercially adept, um, very much linked through mobile phone networks and uh, financial systems, uh, not only across Somalia, but to East Africa, to the Middle East, um, to uh, Europe and and North America, and to um, Australia and and, and as far as China. The only neighbor Somalia never went to war with at some point was Djibouti, as it remained a part of France until as recent as 1977, and Somalia didn't really want to go to war with France. These days, Djibouti houses military bases for the US, France, Italy, Japan, and even China with India and Saudi Arabian bases in negotiation at the moment. How does Somalia feel having so many large military players right there over the border? Somalia became uh, deeply suspicious of what uh, international involvement 
would mean. And meanwhile, the international community had got its fingers badly burnt in Somalia and didn't want anything to do with it. And it really stayed that way for about 10 years. Somalia was left to itself during the 1990s. And actually, during that time, it was chaotic, but it began to establish a sort of local order in which there was a, a modicum of local government and the business sector thrived and actually provided many of the essential services that Somalis needed. So the absence of a central government wasn't as calamitous as many had feared. That began to change after September the 11th and the um, allegation, which had some truth to it, though it was much exaggerated, that Al-Qaeda was president, was present um, in Somalia and was planning attacks. In fact, Al-Qaeda had essentially been removed from Somalia in the 1990s, partly by the Somalis themselves, um, partly by uh, neighboring countries, especially Ethiopia, making military incursions, but above all because um, Al-Qaeda itself made mistakes. It found its, its, its extremist agenda wasn't very welcome there. But as the, the US began to get involved in Somalia remotely by conducting um, airstrikes and commando operations in the 2000s with the aim of rooting out people it suspected were uh, extremists, that actually backfired in a very, very serious way. It ended up fostering that the very extremism that it sought to eradicate. And then in 2006, the Ethiopians launched an invasion. They went in, they occupied Mogadishu, and their intent was to remove the Al-Shabaab extremist group that had grown up. Um, which it saw as an agent of destabilization. And the US came in behind the Ethiopians. And this was um, a disastrous move because it further compounded the radicalization of, of, of Somalia. It gave um, al-Shabaab the nationalist mantle. It could now dress itself up as the force that was resisting continual air attacks by the United States and perhaps more importantly, the occupation of large areas of Somalia by the Ethiopians, who had been historically the adversaries, the rivals, the foes of the Somalis. Do you think there's a balancing act going on here from the international community? You know, if Somalia is too weak, it becomes a hotbed of terrorism and extremism, which will then spill over into the neighboring countries. But if Somalia is too strong and stable, it may have plans to restake its claim on Greater Somalia. Do you think the governments in Nairobi and Addis Ababa are taking this into consideration when deciding how much aid and support to give to Somalia in this war? I, th I think you've got it just about right. Both those countries have their troops in, in, in Somalia. The um, Kenyans went in in 2012 um, after uh, terrorist attacks in, in Kenya. And each of them wants to impose its own form of order on Somalia. So it wants an orderly Somalia, but not a terribly strong Somalia. And they don't always agree among themselves. They have disagreed in, in, in their policies. And Somalis have become rather, Somalis have become rather expert at manipulating the disagreements among those external interveners. The situation was further complicated by the fact that um, other countries became interested in Somalia. So during the famine, 
Turkey was um, very active. It provided humanitarian assistance. It provided assistance to um, state building, to training the army, and so on. And it, and it did so because Turkey at that time was trying to build up a, a broader sphere of influence across the greater Middle East. And it was followed into Somalia by another, a number of other Middle Eastern actors, by Qatar, which was supporting the Muslim Brothers, by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which was supporting anyone who would oppose the Muslim Brothers. They wanted to counterbalance the influence of, of uh, Turkey and, and Qatar. And the UAE in particular also had commercial interests. It wants to build up a network of ports that it controls around the Indian Ocean um, in order to have its, its own uh, extended uh, foreign and commercial policy imprint across a, a wider region. So all these different actors have been piling into Somalia, each with their different agendas. And they brought with them quite a lot of money. They brought with them um, assistance to different security forces so that there is no real coherent Somali um, army or national security force. Each of, each of the units has a different external sponsor and uh, quite likely different um, foreign loyalties. And so the situation is uh, chaotic and complicated and conflictual, but in a uh, a very different way to how it was some years ago when Somalia was, was, was neglected and Somalis were left to their own devices. Now they have too much intervention rather than too little. So looking at the makeup of the current Mogadishu government, we can see that around 75% of them are actually diaspora returning to Somalia from the United States. And with so many members of government having lived and studied in the US, do you think that signals a future closeness between Washington and the current government in Mogadishu? Most Somalis who are educated or are active in politics or who have commercial links have several passports. Um, uh, many of them have been in, uh, educated abroad or who have, have had jobs or businesses in the United States or in Europe. So it's not a new thing for the diaspora to be involved in, in, in Somali politics. And they're pretty good at uh, navigating the different political currents they see. They're certainly um, not going to follow uh, the US blindly. That said, the US has a, a major stake in Somalia, particularly in the National Intelligence and Security Agency. And, uh, and, and the, the US has a continuing active campaign of uh, assassinating figures whom it suspects are terrorists or whom rival Somalis have tipped off to the Americans, this guy's a terrorist, and for their own particular um, reasons of personal or political or commercial rivalry, um, have, have identified this person, and the US has very gullibly gone in and, and eliminated them. So the US is certainly not a force for stability in, um, in Somalia, and the Somalis are, um, are well aware of that. But they have, they've learned to live with the um, deep and penetrating presence of foreign powers that do not have Somali interests at heart. And um, at the moment, the way that Somali politicians navigate this is they do it in a very tactical manner. They, they pursue their own rather narrow political interests uh, by playing off these international uh, actors against one another. 
um, there isn't anything that one can really call a, a strong national um, coherent Somali platform for rebuilding the country. There's certainly ideas in that direction. There's certainly many Somalis who would like to see it and who have um, very good ideas and, and, and positive proposals about what the shape of uh, new Somali government and new Somali society should look like, but they're all the time bumping up against the brute political realities of um, surviving from month to month. So we know Washington has its inroads into the Somali government, but is China also trying to make connections with Somalia? China's um, has a number of, of, of major investments in, in, in the wider region because Somalia is right in the middle of its uh, Belt and Road uh, initiative uh, geography. China's first uh, overseas military base is its naval base that it has set up in Djibouti. It has uh, major investments in the uh, rail infrastructure, the railroad from Djibouti to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and also a railroad investment in, in Kenya, and, and a number of other types of, of uh, commercial uh, military uh, strategic investments in the region. Will it get more deeply involved in Somalia? Um, probably not until it sees a partner that it can do business with in a rather conventional and predictable manner until it, or and until it sees that there are infrastructural investments that will repay the money that it pours in. So it's certainly watching Somalia very closely, um, whether or not it's going to get more deeply involved. I think the answer is probably not for now. So staying on the topic of funding, we know Al-Shabaab gets some money from collecting taxes in the areas they control, as well as selling what it can. But are there other countries pouring money into Al-Shabaab to help destabilize Mogadishu's position? There was a time when uh, Al-Shabaab was getting considerable support from uh, private individuals and companies in the Middle East. And in fact, um, at the time when Al-Shabaab made its um, formal affiliation with Al-Qaeda in 2012, uh, bin Laden actually sent a message to them saying, don't do this, because the moment you identify yourself with Al-Qaeda, it's going to be very difficult for the Saudis and others in the Gulf to turn a blind eye to the private individuals in those countries that are sending money to, to Al-Shabaab. And he was right. Most of the, uh, the international flows of, of, of finance to Al-Shabaab were cut off in the years that followed. And Al-Shabaab ran its operations and still does very much on a shoestring with local uh, commercial smuggling operations. And it's been quite effective at, at um, buying off uh, corrupt officials and military officers, particularly in, in, in Kenya and in one or two other countries. There are a number of reports indicating European companies have been dumping everything from garbage to nuclear waste into Somali waters. Do you give those reports any credibility? Absolutely no doubt that uh, a number of corporations, often with the um, unacknowledged backing of, of, of their governments, uh, used the Somali waters for all sorts of illegal things. 
starting with dumping, but carrying on with massive fishing. And the uh, the overfishing and the, and the poisons that were dumped there in the 1990s and early 2000s essentially killed off the Somali fishing business. So the, the local Somali fishermen, what did they do? They turned to piracy. And initially they turned to piracy as... Um, in a rather non-violent way, they would they, they they would take ships without killing people because they didn't want to up the stakes. They knew that if it came to a shooting war, they certainly couldn't win against the navies of the world. And 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 so they made money instead by um, the, the scam of hostage taking, and they provoked, of course, an international response. Um, which had several parts, one of which was um, forcible eradication but of, of piracy by shooting at pirates. But the chief way in which um, uh, Somali piracy was overcome was actually by paying the pirates to become uh, coast guards. And one way in which this happened was the, uh, the United Arab Emirates, was funded by um, funded the government of, of Puntland to set up a, a, a presidential sort of mercenary army as a counter piracy group, and more widely in in, in Mogadishu, um, uh, various groups were were given money to to act as as coast guards, so that when the 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 material rewards for being uh, coast guards outweighed those of being pirates. Many Somalis abandoned piracy. And at the moment, it's a very minor activity in the Somali economy. And fishing has, in the meantime, um, resumed. And dumping has been, um, the illegal dumping of toxic waste in Somali waters has been reduced, not completely eliminated, but reduced. So many people are calling for the African Union soldiers to leave. But what do you think would happen if all the peacekeepers were to leave Somalia? I think there's really no prospect of them uh, pulling out wholesale. I think the African Union mission in Somalia, which is essentially not a peacekeeping operation, but actually a, a, a warfighting mission, is going to be drawn down. It is um, vastly expensive and not very effective. But the... Um, when it does draw down, the, the, the alternative scenarios are going to be a, a resurgence of al-Shabaab and a security uh, vacuum in many, uh, many areas. Essentially, Somalia has, gets trapped in this um, cycle of uh, it's alternately uh, neglected by the world and then interfered with by the world. And neither of those options really gives the the opportunity for Somalis to work out their own system of government and, uh, and, and, and to develop their own society. Do you think Somalia would ever follow the divisions and break apart into three nations, being Somaliland, Puntland and Jubaland? Puntland, of course, has no agenda of independence. It wants to be uh, a partner with the government in Mogadishu as part of, 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 of a single Somalia, but it wants to, Puntland to have uh, the, a, the status of a um, federal state plus, uh, sort of almost a confederal system. Um, Somaliland still demands independence, and it, is, it, it has been doing so for almost 30 years now. 
Is it likely to get it? If it hasn't got it up to now, it doesn't seem likely that it will achieve it. It has managed to achieve much better governing institutions than, than Mogadishu. And it, um, it, the success of its governance model is a standing rebuke and a standing challenge to um, the Mogadishu. So what does the next decade hold for Somalia? How can they solve the Al-Shabaab problem and regain some reasonable stability? There has to be a, a process of, of negotiation. And the most immediate negotiation that Mogadishu has to become involved in is with Al-Shabaab. That's the, that's the number one challenge. And around the world, we have relearned a very hard lesson, which is that uh, you can't defeat terrorist groups uh, militarily. You have, at the end of the day, to deal with them politically. And that involves uh, negotiating with them. And uh, the government in Mogadishu will have to do that. But in order to do that, it will have to get uh, more legitimacy and more capability itself, while it remains essentially in the hands of uh, foreign powers. Al-Shabaab is not going to negotiate with it. It would say, why negotiate with Mogadishu? I would rather negotiate with um, with Washington or with uh, Riyadh or Abu Dhabi. That kind of turmoil is very familiar territory for, for Somalia. Somalis have come to live with, um, survive, and indeed prosper in, uh, with a high degree of, of, of turbulence. And so I, I expect that the, the, the qualities that will see uh, Somalia continue to function are precisely the ones that have got it through the last 30 years. Um, they're very strong networks, their international interlinkedness, uh, their financial and commercial acumen, and their readiness to adapt very, very quickly to changing regional and international circumstances. So I don't see um, any immediate prospect of the federal government of Somalia forging a workable central state on the conventional bureaucratic administrative model. I see more of this continuing dance of um, different actors uh, juggling their priorities and renegotiating uh, their, their political relationships, their frameworks for governance um, in, in a very unstable world. I went into this piece expecting to be reporting on a frankly failed state, sinking further and further into a black hole. But I leave this piece with some hope. Somalia is in a tough position, with no one wanting to see it really get back on its feet, as every time it has, its neighbours have felt its power. The international community dumps into its waters, and then intervenes when the people start fighting back against the very warlords and officials who signed off on it. And really being as poor as they are, there's not much they can really do about it. Because these same communities that are dumping in the waters are also the same ones helping keep Mogadishu out of the hands of Al-Shabaab. So they have to decide who is worse, Al-Shabaab or dumping. So progress is always incremental, brick by brick by brick. But there is something to say about the Somali brick by brick attitude that gives me hope for the country. 
when we were researching for this story, we came across a man named Ahmed Jamal, who owns a restaurant in downtown Mogadishu. The restaurant employs around 150 people and has become a hotspot in the city. Sadly though, the restaurant has been attacked by suicide bombers, active shooters and car bombs several times now. But every time it gets destroyed, Ahmed picks himself back up, dusts himself off and builds up the restaurant again. And he opens up every single time as an act of defiance, a refusal to be down and out no matter how bad the situation is. To me, Ahmed is Somalia, a country constantly knocked down that by all rights should be way worse off than it already is. But it isn't. It is improving. And that is almost completely in credit to the will of the individual Somalis. If anyone could salvage the current situation, it would be them. And I really hope they do. Thank you so much again for tuning into the program. Once again, each month keeps getting bigger and bigger. If you want to follow the show, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Red Line Pod, or you can follow me personally on Twitter at MikeHilliardOz, Oz is in Australia. Although the main group I can contribute the success of the show to is our amazing Patreons, who donate to the show each month and help us keep this thing running. Every single dollar they donate brings us more help to chase bigger stories, bring on more people, and we are incredibly fortunate to have them. And to say thanks, we're having another one of our Patreon meetups and live Q&As with myself coming up next week. So if you sign up to Patreon this week, you'll be able to jump on that with myself and ask your most burning questions to me, whilst also helping to support the show. A huge thank you goes out to all of our guests this week. Omar was incredibly knowledgeable in the subject, and a real pleasure to work with. He also does some amazing work over with the Crisis Center. Omar and his colleagues as well run a fantastic geopolitics podcast called The Horn, all about the geopolitics of East Africa. If you want to dive even deeper into the East of Africa, I highly recommend you check it out. You can find Omar on Twitter at Omar S. Mahmood. And you can also find The Horn on Spotify and Apple Playlists. Dagan really does some amazing work throughout the region and gave us a fantastic insight to what things are like on the ground there. Her work with Adiso has been fantastic, with some real results. And if you want to help them, you can find them on Twitter at Adiso Africa. I also know that Deegan is about to launch her own African geopolitics show in a few months, and I know that it will be added to my weekly playlist. So if you want to stay up to date on all of this, you can find her on Twitter at Deganali. Before we even started looking at this piece, I had two separate emails urging me to have Alex Deval on the show, as he's the pinnacle of East Africa. And having done the interview now, I fully agree with both of them. Alex was a fantastic guest, and his work with the World Peace Foundation has made real impacts in the region. I highly recommend you check out one of his many books, and also go over and see the World Peace Foundation on Twitter on the handle at WorldPeaceFDTN. As usual, I also want to thank my fantastic team, Joe, who helps me clean up the audio, and Mark, who provides the extra vocals that are not mine. Both of these guys run absolutely fantastic shows in their own right, Joe's being called Estimates, and Mark's being the Climacting Network. Both of them are amazing, amazing shows, and I highly recommend you check them out, not just because they're good guys, but also because they're good shows. The last thank you goes out to you for tuning in this week. I really, really do appreciate it. 
I read all of the comments and DMs that get sent through the show, and it really does mean a lot to you to see so many people reach out and ask their questions to me. So thank you very much. We'll be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But for now, thank you and good night.